If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. Hello, dear listener. This is your host, Andrew Scottsko, and I am so excited to bring this conversation to you as it is about one of my favorite topics of all time. This is a conversation split into two parts about the meta skill of flow, which is built on focus and attention. Flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness and is considered to be the optimal experience a human can have in life. It's one of the most inherently rewarding and meaningful experiences anyone can have. Basically, the more flow you have in your life, the better your life's going to be, period, full stop, no caveat. And that is what this episode is about, helping you to understand and increase your time and flow so you can get the most out of every single aspect of your life. This is about understanding the psychology and the state that we are operating in when we are at our absolute best so that we can live more of our lives from that state. Our goal in this conversation was to get your hands on the knobs and dials and the levers of your own psychology. By the end of this interview, you'll have a strong understanding of the principles involved in flow so you'll know how to actually tweak and improve your experience on an ongoing basis to have more flow in all areas of your life and be able to apply these principles across a wide range of circumstances. And that's important because as you'll hear about in this episode, the science of flow is extremely clear. Flow dramatically increases every single measure of performance you can possibly imagine, as well as your subjective quality of life experience. My guests in this conversation are Rian Doris and Connor Murphy, who are co-founders of the Flow Research Collective, along with their very well-known partner, Mr. Stephen Kotler. Flow Research Collective is a research and training company at the bleeding edge of flow research and applied cognitive science. They are leaders in the research on the neurophysiology of flow and help companies around the world leverage that research towards peak performance. They work with organizations globally such as Formula One, Deloitte, USC, UCLA, Imperial College London, and their work has been featured in very fancy publications that you've heard of like Time Magazine, National Geographic, Forbes, Fortune, TED, Harvard Business Review, and so on and so forth. These guys really, really know their stuff. So without any further ado, please enjoy part one of this two-part conversation with some very cool humans, Rian Doris and Connor Murphy. I usually like to kind of start on, on more of a personal note and then we'll sort of guide into the, the essentials and, and we'll just see where it goes. Um, but one of the questions I had for you, Connor, was I saw that you actually have a, a background in international development and economics and, mm-hmm. and that you worked. And I'm guessing this is how you got into like the data work you do now. But I'm curious if you could kind of tell us the story. But how did you go from writing grants for like sub-Saharan Africa <laughs> economic <laughs> development to being the chief science officer of the Flow Research Collective? Because that is like those seem worlds apart. How did that happen? <laughs> so uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> let's let's oh. keep it on the brief and then we'll just see where it goes. Well, so actually, like I, I got into data science for a number of different reasons. Um, and so two main things happened at around the same time. And so first, uh, there were uh, uh, two individuals, Esther Duflo uh, and Abhijit Banerjee. Um, so they're two uh, ec- economists out of um, MIT. They both wound up winning the Nobel Prize for some of their work in behavioral economics. And so basically, those individuals were the first people to apply the randomized control trial, right, which we know from pharmaceutical interventions, right, where you take two different groups of people, you give one of them an intervention, you give one of them, you know, some sort of active placebo, and then you look at the difference between them. Um, their main innovation was they took that strategy and applied it to international development. 
And so if I go into sub-Saharan Africa, if I go into rural Kenya and I give this village this intervention, this village something else, and I look at the difference between them, that way I can start to validate the difference between different interventions. Um, and so this was a paradigm shift in nonprofits. I mean, nonprofits are horrific at using data, right? And they're getting a hell of a lot better. A lot of the reasons why they're getting better is thanks to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because they're pushing randomized control trials harder than anybody else's. Um, and that's been incredible incredibly, incredibly impactful. Um, but I started to get more and more involved in this idea of, you know, how is it that you uh, use data to have a bigger impact in what you're doing? Um, and so I was just really inspired by what was happening there. Um, so I was actually on the other side of uh, the equation from grant writing. So I was uh, working for a foundation. I was working for the Rotary Foundation at the time, where I worked for about three and a half years. Um, and so I was evaluating uh, different grant proposals, giving feedback for how they can modify that in order to be more impactful. And so my goal in that period of time was to use those best practices from these uh, especially MIT researchers and one researcher in particular coming out of Princeton as well um, to try and make those uh, grants more impactful. And so I started seeing just how powerful data is uh, when you're in those environments. And like there was a huge market gap at that point because nobody in nonprofits was using this particularly well, with the exception of Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, and so that, that started to change more and more as time went on. But, you know, still, you know, obviously, you know, it, when I talk to, you know, friends at Facebook who are PhD researchers who are researching why when you start to write a status update and then you delete it, they're trying to figure out all the nuances of why that's the case, right? Like that's how advanced Facebook is. And that's only scratching the surface of all the different things that they're doing. And then nonprofits are sitting here doing some more uh, rudimentary techniques. Um, but that just got me incredibly inspired by how data can enforce uh human potential. And so like that's that that you know set off a whole chain of events. That was one aspect of that journey. The other aspect of that journey um, is I became really interested in tracking data on myself and seeing how it correlated back to uh, my mood and energy levels. Um, and so like this is, you know, a relatively basic quantified self project that, you know, I've talked to a ton of people who have do, done very, very similar things. Um, but I started tracking all of this data on myself. And then I was like, oh, shit, like this is really insightful, but I don't have any statistics. I have no idea how to actually interpret this. I can plot some basic plots, but I don't know how to actually, you know, interpret this in a rigorous way. And so... As time went on, I started taking more and more statistics classes, started learning more and more advanced uh, uh, machine learning uh, techniques. And then one thing led to another. And then all of a sudden, I'm in this room with you guys <laughs> where I'm you know, continuing to use um, data and technology to reinforce people's best selves, except for at this point, instead of doing this in the context of sub-Saharan Africa, um, I'm doing this in the context of you know anybody who's interested in some level of peak performance. Wow. Mm. That is so interesting. Did you know that about him? I didn't. <laughs> a little bit, like the last sentence. <laughs> but not, not, the, not the first piece. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, love that. so interesting, man. Oh, man. And I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but Rian, when I was getting ready for this conversation, I remember you. there was this re this book you referenced so many times in some of your other conversations that you said was like, when you, you talked about as a teenager, oh. right? Like you, you, know, you, had that, you had the accident and that yeah. took you out like physically for, for years and yeah. you were trying you know, everything under the sun to like yeah. just get back to normal basically yeah. and get your life back. And you talked about this one book um, by Michael Said, I think it was. Yeah, Matthew Said. Matthew Said, yeah. yeah. Blink, I believe it was. Yeah, and I was just curious, exactly. like, what did that book do? Because you, you referenced it and it clearly had a huge yeah. impact. What was that? Like, what did it do well, for you? So yeah, when I was 13, I'm not sure if you, you know this, I think. But when I was 13, I had a uh, really severe head injury. I went down a hundred foot water slide that was <clears throat> basically vertically pointing at the ground 
did a somersault stupidly off the bottom of the slide, semi-rotated, and then cracked the top of my head off the concrete bottom of the pool. And you were in like, it was like Croatia or something? I was in Croatia, yeah. pre-EU, so the water park wasn't very well regulated or run. <laughs> me, me and my brother were like going up to the top steps. It was like broken planks. We were like, this something off here. <laughs> we're like a foot in the air. The wood is like rotting. Um, anyway, went to, yeah. So had that really, really severe accident <clears throat> for the next year. Had super bad amnesia. Couldn't remember the name of my, some of my close friends. Couldn't remember the name of my favorite band. Was totally debilitated. Missed a year of school. Went back to school, but still had really severe symptoms the year after that at age 15. And then found that book randomly in like this apartment that I was living in on my own at 15 in Dublin. Uh, I don't even know whose book it was still actually. <laughs> just there. Yeah. Maybe it was the previous owner or something. Uh, and just read it. And I wasn't even a big reader at the time. But he basically does a similar thing to Jeff Colvin in the talent myth um, and tries to make a case against the idea of inherent talent of any kind and argues that we are essentially just a product of nurture when it comes to our abilities. And I got like so obsessed with that idea. And the way I've described it previously is that it sort of like implanted a growth mindset and gave me the sense of agency. And oh my God, talent is not a fixed thing. It's not static. You can actually develop it. You he can straight up actions. incepted you. Exactly. Completely. <laughs> Inception right. right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember like, at that, at like 15, I would like purposefully try and get my friends to argue that talent was a thing so I could like <laughs> argue against them and convince them that it wasn't. Was so, you were like, one of those. Yeah, like, exactly. like you got a philosophy degree. Oh, yeah. yeah. So now, now it's all making now it comes yeah, in. Exactly. He's like, come at me, come at me, come on. Yeah, come at me. Right. Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. <laughs> um, but that, but I read that and then became obsessed with the idea that, oh my God, if you, like, if you do things, other things, can happen as a result of those things. So I started studying properly in school, started reading more. I read another book that was sort of similar to that was The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, which is a book by Robin Sharma. A super simple sort of stuff, but when you're first introduced to that whole world, it's like kind of revolutionary to realize that if you get a good morning routine, you feel better for the rest of the day. And what? <laughs> these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that was my intro to the whole world of like peak performance, self-development you know, personal growth, if you want to call it that or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And the rest is, the rest is kind of history. So yeah, one of the things I was, you know, really curious about, um, and we're going to, we're going to talk a lot more about all the, th- and all these topics, we're going to go deep on flow and, um, performance and potential and exploring a lot of this stuff because it's, it's so fascinating and cool. Um, but one of the things I was really, and we're going to talk a lot about flow research collective as well, which you guys have obviously you know come <laughs> together with, with Steven to start over the last about a year or so, right? Year. Just, just, just coming up a on a year, 11 months. Yeah. Well, I mean, we worked together for a long time before, yeah, before that, that. Um, yeah. but the company in its current iteration has been around for coming up on a year. Coming up in a year. Yeah. yeah well, first, first of all, congratulations. Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you. you made it. That's, that's a big milestone. Year one <laughs> a a year. Big, is a big yeah. milestone. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, one, one of the things I'm, I'm really qu- curious about just is how has the level of understanding you all have developed around the ideas of flow and like flow applied to everyday life and work? How has that actually impacted your experience of starting this company over the last year? Like what, why, why, in what ways is flow research collective? How would it have been different if you didn't know all the things you know right, right. now? Right. <clears throat> That's a great question, man. Yeah, it's a great question. In other words, if we were doing it all like not in flow. Yeah, like what would happen if you didn't, if you weren't like a world experts in flow? Like how would this look yeah, different? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I, I personally, at least I have my own like routine and processes and protocols very much so now set and refined 
that drive me into flow so I can, I feel like pretty consistently systematically drive myself into flow. I start work normally at about 4.45 a.m. and just pretty much go until usually five straight and I'm able to sort of drop into that state for the entire duration and it just feels phenomenal, incredibly enjoyable, satisfying and I go to bed like sometimes so excited to wake up and work again that I can't sleep. Um, and I assume that that positively contributes to you know, results and the momentum we've been able to gain pretty fast and the movements we've been able to make. So I would imagine one thing is we'd be a little further back um, with respect to where we are company-wise, training-wise, clients-wise, products-wise. Otherwise, I mean, it's tough to imagine running the Flow Research Collective unable to get into flow. But. Yeah, so, so like as, as you're talking, I'm just thinking of, you know, a conversation that uh, the three of us had, you, me, and Stephen, um, uh, many years ago when we first started, when we first started doing our first research together, which was a creativity study. And so basically it's looking at the impact of flow on creativity. And so we're sitting here, you know. And, and just really quick, just for the listener, since Stephen's not in this conversation, when we mm-hmm. refer to Stephen, we mean Stephen Kotler, who, mm-hmm. and we'll link to him in the show notes, but one of the you know preeminent writers and thinkers about flow in the world and mm-hmm. co-founders with Rian and Connor in the Flow Research Collective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Stevens are uh, uh, the CEO of uh, Flow Research Collective has written uh, many different best-selling books, um, a lot of them having to do with flow, a lot of them having to do with exponential technologies. His most recent book being The Future is Faster Than You Think, which launched, I believe, officially last yeah, week. We, yeah, yeah. Um, but so um, as I was saying, when we were initially doing this creativity study and we we're trying to figure out like, okay, if is the flow that you experience in creative states, is it distinct from flow that you experience if you're, you know, skiing down a mountain or, mm. you know, inflow in your, when you're in some sort of business environment or whatever else the case may be. And we're sitting here trying to figure out the best way to suss this out. We're like, actually, I don't think I've had any creative moment that wasn't in flow. Right. And so like when you're talking about like where we would have been, had we not been able to have, you know, really strong personal habits, a really strong sense of productivity and drive. Like, I don't think we would have been able to do any of this crap. Yeah. Like, or maybe we would have been able to, but like on, on, you know, like give it a three X multiple on how long it would have taken right. us. And the other big one actually that you just made me think of is I think there would have been much larger unnecessary sacrifice. So all of us have been able to live pretty balanced, nice, healthy lives while building the company in the last 11 months. And I think unfortunately when people have slightly less robust habits and practices around peak performance, they end up sacrificing everything to get to the end result, their health, you know, their relationships, everything. So because of it, I think we've been able to like keep other areas of life pretty intact while still making great progress. Right. And that balance is huge. I mean, like so much of what you see in, you know, quote unquote peak performance is like the rah, 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 like push yourself all the time. But balancing that with, you know, a strong sense of recovery, a strong sense of, you know, the stuff that makes your life valuable. I mean, for Steven, it's skiing, you know, for me, it's, you know, skydiving, Mm. Um, you know, without that like sense of balance, right? Like it's, it's hard to maintain that in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, that's something it's, it's really, it's actually really impressive. Cause I mean, as someone who's, I've been a part of starting companies and I have to say that is so distinct from the experience I had. I'm, I'm actually like envious and I'm like, okay, that's goal for the next one. <laughs> be able to say in a, a year in what you, what you were yeah. saying right now. Cause that's amazing. Uh, but I think it's probably, probably something that most entrepreneurs probably wouldn't say a year in. So the fact that I think there's probably something really valuable you've tapped into, not just for performance and what, you know, the results you're creating, but also your experience of, of your life and, and what you guys are creating, which is, 
is fantastic. And and just I, I realized just a second ago we didn't actually didn't lay a foundation of what the Flow Research Collective is. So <laughs> maybe maybe you could give just a quick overview. I know it's it's a research and training organization, but maybe you just give a quick um, quick download for the listener of like what is what is Flow Research Collective. Cool. You take the training, I'll take the research. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> uh, that, that's how we operate anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> so yeah, it is both a research and training organization. Connor will touch on the research side. On the training side, we work with entrepreneurs and executive teams, um, teaching them and training them to be able to reduce burnout, stress and overwhelm and access flow state more consistently to improve their output, their performance, the results they're able to produce in their business and their, in, in their lives. We've got a team of peak performance coaches and all of our coaches are either psychologists or neuroscientists. So the vision there has been to build the world's most effective, experienced and academically credentialed team of peak performance coaches. Oftentimes the coaches industry is very sort of unregulated. There aren't necessarily any barriers to entry. There's no, you know, standards really for what makes a qualified coach. So we wanted to kind of flip that on its head and go to the other extreme and primarily have our coaches be psychologists or neuroscientists depending and so a lot of our training involves usually a client coming on board wanting to get some result that they will generally self-define a little bit um and we pair them with a coach coach works with them usually over an eight-week period to implement habits you know changes in their own life changes mindset wise that are going to help them be able to drive themselves into flow more consistently to get whatever results again they want to get whether that's you know reducing the amount of time they have to spend working maybe it's being 10 x as productive and working even more totally depends on the individual but we just help them get to that end result and i think one common denominator amongst our coaches is they're all very interested in positive psychology right and so they're individuals who are you know uh, oftentimes trained clinical psychiatrists um and they focus so much like so much of psychology does on abnormal psychology on the downside of human life and they're all people who've kind of come together around this idea of you know w- what makes human flourishing possible um and so their focus on that is one common denominator under all of them um and i think it it provides a lot of rigor to a field that um, is squishy in a lot of ways. A little hand wavy. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like positive psychology can be that way, but also like the, the trend that we're seeing right now is towards life coaches and like, you know, with life coaches, like it, it's in a sense, it's watering down a lot of what used to be the domain of clinical psychiatry. Um, and so like I, it's, um, I think individuals who benefit from that, I think that's fantastic. But like at the end of the day, like there are a lot of challenges with that domain of, you know, credentialing. How can you actually have science back approaches that yeah. allow you to, you know, um, empower people to unlock their potential in some capacity or another? Yeah. We, we, yeah. And that relates to the biology versus personality thing, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, we really demarcate from trying to tell people what works for us or like coaching or training based on personal experience and rather based on, okay, here's what the actual research or literature says about what works. Let's try this systematically for you, run an end-to-one experiment, see if it works for you, see if you can produce results in your own life with it. And if so, great, continue on rather than, you know, deriving our methodology from personal experience. So rather than being like super prescriptive, you're, you're kind of sort of coming to the table and saying like, here's what science has learned of about what flow is and how how it can be accessed here's the menu basically mm-hmm. and then let's start working with yeah. the menu and find what for works you. for you exactly rather than me like you know 
giving you my weird rituals yeah. or whatever, which <laughs> right. might be interesting as an example of like the stuff in action, but ultimately you got to figure out how to do it for yourself. Yeah. Or, exactly. or, or the, I mean, the other side of, yeah, the weird rituals thing is being kind of, um, you know, blinded by science or constrained by science. So one of the, one of the phrases I love to use, at least with respect to the coaching is that we want to be consistent with science, but not constrained by scientists. So for example, if there's no empirical data behind an intervention that is working for an individual and producing great results for them, that, you know, they should obviously still continue to do that thing and the science will catch up. And that's one of the things we say is, you know, normally coaches or clinicians are 50 years ahead of the research. Um, because they're constantly running end-to-end experiments with their clients all the time. And they're gaining this sort of observational data around things that are actually, you know, happening. And it's a very pure, direct, immediate form of empiricism as well. It still is, you know, a form, I think, of empiricism. And so we try to ensure that we're, yeah, consistent with the science, but, you know, not telling people not to do things because there isn't a paper yet written about it or whatever the case may be. For sure. Right. And then in terms of the science, so, um, uh, my background is more the science side of things, right? And so um, one of, I guess, the tagline, to start with the tagline of the organization, right? It's uh, decode flow, uh, recode humans, right? And so one of the main things that we're trying to do is drill down from a scientific perspective deeper into what we understand about flow. And so flow dates back to the 70s when um, uh, Csikszentmihalyi, the so-called uh, uh, godfather of flow, um uh, started publishing his research on what makes people's lives meaningful, um, what makes people's lives uh, productive. Um, and he, you know, found this state of consciousness known as flow. And so um, a lot of the research that's been done in flow, it's been on the psychology level, right? So it's been on, you know, what is the subjective experience of flow? How can we make different uh, psychometric instruments in order to be able to assess flow? Um, what are the different dimensions of flow, right? Is uh, flow when you're in a group of people in a social setting, is that different from if you're, you know, an individual doing some sort of cognitive tasks? Um, like those were the domains of questions that were being answered for a long time. Um, and so now we're starting to move more into the neuroscience of flow. And so what's actually going on your brain and your body when that happens and so how can we map this subjective experience to what's actually happening within your brain and your body um and that is an incredibly complex mm. um subject matter as you would expect i mean so much of neuroscience right like like one interpretation of neuroscience is like the goal is to you know solve the brain mind problem yeah. right and so how can i like match up your like subjective experience with what's actually happening in the structure and function of your brain so it's an incredibly complex domain um flow intersects with so many different domains and so for instance you know flow is an attentional task right when you're in flow your attention is completely focused on the present um and so there's a ton of neuroscience research on attention right uh flow is similar to meditation but it's different from meditation there's a ton of neuroscience research on meditation and so a lot of what we do on the science side of things is we try and drill down into that equation um, and get a real solid sense of what exactly is going on in your brain and your body when you're in that state and once we have more of a sense of what's going on there we know a lot of things there's still a lot of things we don't know um once we get a better sense of that then you can use that knowledge to better build training mechanisms mm-hmm. to better build technologies to better build uh pharmacology pharmacological like inter- uh, interventions that allow people to have more flow in their life yeah so actually really quick i want to like let's take two minutes and just lay a foundation so every you know everybody knows flow even if they don't realize they know it right mm-hmm. everyone's had this experience at some point in their life even though they may not know it by the label flow. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could just take a second. And for those who aren't familiar with that term, just like when, what is flow and also what is it not mm-hmm. like, what, what do people, what are the misconceptions about it? 
Yeah. So, so let's start with just high level. What is flow? And then um, we can drill down into how to make that really personal uh, and applicable to many people. Because one thing that I commonly hear is when I'm discussing, um, especially with um, random people that I meet, right? Because, you know, I live in the Bay Area. Bay Area is an echo chamber, just like any other place that you might live. Um, and so flow is a bit of a more, you know, a common piece of the vernacular. Um, but when I talk to people who um, are completely outside of like that bubble, um, then like they have like these weird aha moments. They're like, oh, I've had that experience, right? I never mm. had a language for it, but now I have a language for it. And so that's really exciting for me. Um, but at a high level, flow is an optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and you perform your best. And the easiest way to get people to like click in like know what flow is is just imagine a time that time passed radically differently um and so maybe you got lost in a conversation and all of a sudden you look at the clock and it's two hours later um think of like the like car crash freeze frame effect right that isn't exactly flow but it has that same sense of time distortion um and so those moments right the, the original research from chick sent me high um indicates that like those moments are among the most meaningful happiest moments that we have and so the reason why flow is arguably the centerpiece of positive psychology is because those are the most meaningful powerful moments of our lives. And so the goal of the company began like became, you know, how is it that you decode these moments and how do you uh, make these more accessible to other people? Because there's a science behind it, right? Like we know things about this. And because we know things about this, we can manipulate different parts of that process in order to get people to tap into flow. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have anything well, to add to that. Yeah. yeah. There's a point there that I love, which is I kind of talk about it as a necessary paradigm shift you need to make to understand what we do as a company in the first place and what our goals are, which is the idea that you can take a state of consciousness, which flow is reverse engineer it or look at, you know, how it tends to occur and then put things in place to systematically recreate that state of consciousness within your own life. So essentially you can train and tune your state of consciousness, which I think is quite a radical realization for a lot of people just in general. Exactly. And like, yeah, just piggybacking off of that. Like, um, so really, really big picture, right? So like the entirety of your life, um, oftentimes the most meaningful, happiest moments are when you're in flow. Um, but if we also, we were talking about future thinking a moment ago, um, like for, like if you're thinking insanely future oriented with these things, right? Like what are 21st century skills? And this is something that, you know, we talk about with some frequency, right? So like 21st century skills are like your ability to be creative, your ability to innovate, right? Your ability to do things that are you at this point in time, uniquely human. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's the goal that we're, we're like looking to accomplish is by using something like flow, you're training a state of consciousness rather than individual skills. Yeah. And like we are systematically awful at doing this as a species. We don't know how to train creativity, mm -hmm. right? We know how to take a bunch of art school students. We know how to put them in the same room. We know how to put them in different environments that they might be a little bit more creative. But by and large, we don't have a systematic understanding yeah. of these things. And so education of the future will likely be more focused on how do I train you into a given state? Yeah. Much more so than how do I give you this discrete set of skills? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a, a nice way to conceptualize that, I think, is primary and secondary competencies. So a primary competency might be writing or coding or project management. But then you've got the secondary competency, which drives or influences the quality of the primary competency. Another way to think about it is like a meta skill. And that might be creativity, creativity 
that might be flow, that might be an ability to adapt or learn or synthesize new ideas or think critically. And so in that respect, we're focusing on a secondary competency that drives and enhances all of the primary competencies or specific skills or things you do in your own life. Yeah. See, flow seems like it's one of those really interesting things because not only does everyone know it, it's that thing that we're all addicted to without even realizing we're addicted to it. Like, (laughs) you know, I think about as I was getting ready for this conversation over the last couple of weeks and thinking about flow and, you know, you start to see it everywhere when you start looking for it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out to me um, or struck me was I'd be having conversations with people and they would just, you know, I would ask them, how's your day going? Or, you know, we would get into a conversation about something they loved and it would be really interesting to think about like, why do they love that? Like, so, you know, I I was Mm. talking to a friend and she just loves yoga. I mean, like loves yoga. (laughs) And I was just like, Oh, like, what what is it about? Like, what does yoga like do for you? Like, what what is it about that, about it that resonates with you so strongly? And she starts describing all these sorts of things. And I realized in the middle of the conversation, yeah, yoga, she likes yoga, but she likes, well, the reason she likes yoga is it's her, it's her doorway to flow. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We fall in love with the doorway, but we think we love the doorway, but what we really love is what's on the other side of the door. Another, yeah, a way I love thinking about that is that like people do things for the state that they get into when they do those things, but the state is activity or task independent. So the reason a surfer will get up at 4.30 a.m. and drive four and a half hours to go catch some waves is because of the state of flow, usually, or whatever the state may be that they can drop into when they're on those waves. But when you can then take that state deploy certain practices and habits and protocols that can drop you into that state in any activity, then you get the same effect and the same draw to that other activity. So for example, if you can learn how to drop into that same state that you're in while you're surfing from a neurophysiological standpoint while you're working, then work can begin to have that same like pull and draw and desire and excitement around it. And that's what you can do when you can reverse engineer flow and then you know, learn how to recreate it. Right. And then the more flow that you have in your life, it draws out, um, you know, the technical term is an autotelic personality, right? It's a person who does something for the sake of doing that thing. Right. And so if you like really like drill down on your friend and be like, okay, but why do you do yoga? But why do you do it? Why do you do it? You know, eventually you'll get like, you know, I do yoga cause I like doing yoga. Right. Like yeah. you, 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 you get to this point where like it's self-referential and it's like, oh, that's the autotelic personality speaking. Right. That's like the, like, I don't know why I do this thing, but I, I drive a tremendous amount of value to, from And I can talk about like this in terms of flow and say like, oh, I want to get as much flow in my life as I can. But why do you want more flow in your life? It's all because I want more flow in my life. Right. Right. And and so like when you have a lot of flow in your life and you continue to go down that path, the reason why you do it is because you like doing it. Right. Um, And so like flow creates this sort of uh, autotelic personality over time, because, you know, um, if I think of my own personal development, you know, I was very logical and rational, you know, for an extended period of time until I started having more and more flow in my life. And then I started doing things more just because I wanted to do the things right right, right and like, there with you exactly <laughs> and like and like we were talking about entrepreneurship earlier like you know that's like you know the quintessential entrepreneur like why does the entrepreneur go and create another company right it's not because they need the money right like if you look at the stats right entrepreneurs like in general do not make more money make less money than you know a salaried person who's you know continuing to like move up in their yeah. career um, and so like you don't do the thing because of the reason why you think you do the thing you do the thing because you know it, it has a certain level of seduction for you and if you ha- if like if your mind operates in that way then odds are you have this thing called an autotelic personality which is a fantastic thing to have especially if you're an employer if you're an employer and you want productive uh employees you want people who are autotelically motivated because they're going to be driven and they're yeah. not just going to be you know punching the clock so I mean, this is like the home. core of intrinsic motivation right exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. and and it also 
related to that, I think is the ultimate competitive advantage. You know, it's, I think it's impossible to compete with someone who is pulled into their work like that and has that, you know, end in itself flavor to what they do. Mm. If you're having to, you know, draw on willpower and sheer discipline alone to get things done, there's just, there's no way you can compete against someone who's just like pulled through it and so like strongly autotelically driven. And I, I often think of, video gamers as analogous to what you can get into with a flow state like a video gamer exerts effort sometimes for you know 12 hours straight Mm -hmm. and there's no inherent difference really you know they're using cognitive faculties they're spending time focused on one thing but they're able to do that effortlessly but then why when it comes to sitting down to try and do their email or work is it's so tough and an hour feels like you know endless amounts of time but they were exerting effort technically in a very similar respect while playing video games oftentimes they're solving harder challenges they're doing more challenging things but it's because again they're in that state mm. while video gaming but not able to get into that state while in work yeah and so, but when you can relay that into other areas you can just i think like rocket ship off for sure and i think a lot of the this we're going to kind of lay a foundation here and then really where i want to spend a lot of the conversation is exploring some of the ways people can do this like i want to talk more about like developing that sort of i think you've called it flow proneness mm-hmm. and then how people can start to map this into their lives more um but you know, I really make sure we have a good a good foundation first here, uh, so people really kind of get what they're what they're working with here. And one of the one of the things that I found interesting, what you just said, Connor, was, or I'm curious about, was you said that you talked about like the autotelic personality. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, I could imagine someone listening to this going like, "Oh, well, I I just don't have that kind of personality." Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person? <laughs> I mean, um, the easy answer is, you know, as you know, a a human like subject, right? Like you're like, you're able to change and adapt over time. Right. Um, and so like, there's like the people who have like a strong autotelic personality, you know, are people who kind of fuel that day over day, week over week, month over month, year over year. Um, and so like, like the heart of having a growth mindset, right. You know, everybody's talking about fixed versus growth mindsets right now. I mean, the heart of having a growth mindset is the like expectation that you can change given enough time and effort. Um, and and like, like that's at a high level, that makes a lot of sense, but like really drill down into what that means. It's like, you can change like some of the most like essential parts of the way that you function given enough time or effort. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? Like just read the Buddhists, right? You know, for the Buddhists, like, you know, the hardest thing, like the heart of, you know, human suffering is the fact that change is hard, right? Um, I mean, that's paraphrasing slightly, but that's the sense of it, right? Um, and so like, you know, change is exceptionally difficult and it's one of the hardest things, if not the hardest things you can ever go through as a human being. Um, however, like you are free as a human being to change these different types of your personality and these different foundational types of your, uh, aspects of your experience given enough time and effort. Um, and so should the autotelic personality be something that you're shooting for? I'm not sure. That's a really big goal. And I think that's really hard to achieve, but should the goal be like, Hey, I want, you know, a 10% improvement to the amount of flow that I experience on a weekly or monthly basis. I mean, that's a totally like, you know, doable, actionable goal. And then as time goes on, you're slowly going to cultivate that personality, mm. whether you like it or not. And it's crazy seeing like, like, like one thing that really stuck with me is, um, 
So one of the reasons why I'm uh, in this space is because I read uh, Stephen's book, Rise of Superman, um, many years ago. I forget how many years ago, maybe four or five years ago now. Um, and that book is about flow states in action and adventure sports. And so the, the main thesis of the book is that in no domain other than in action sports have you seen evolution as quickly. Um, and so he goes through a number of different action sports. Let's so take big wave surfing. So the amount of time it took us to go from uh, surfing 10-foot waves to 30-foot waves, it's just astronomically small in the grand scheme of things compared to any other domain of human activity, right? Um, and so I, I became very inspired by this, and this convinced me that I should uh, start skydiving. <laughs> um, and so I, I went on one skydive. Uh, I like uh, loved it. Uh, went through a Chicago winter. I was living in Chicago at the time. I uh, couldn't stop thinking about it. And then, you know, as soon as the season started the next year, um, I went and got my license, and it became a whole big thing. Um, but when I first got my license, I'll never forget uh, what one of my coaches said to me, um, which was, you know, I, I was, you know, incredibly thankful because he had worked with me like extensively and he was just like really excited about working with me. Um, and I just got a lot out of that relationship. Um, and so at the end, like I was, you know, thanking him for all this. And he's like, no, this has been my pleasure because I just made one more person I can skydive with. And it, it was, it was the most interesting fucking comment because, you know, he, this is somebody who, you know, lived far away from where that, uh, airport was and so you know he's you know driving out there every weekend he's somebody who um you know was uh, incredibly frugal yet he was you know partaking in what's arguably the most expensive sport and hobby you can do outside of motorsports right and so he he's putting so much time and effort into this and he's doing it just out of you know the fact that he really likes doing it and like his reward for all of this was like okay great i have one more person i can do this <laughs> thing with. and like that extent of that like autotelic personality something that always stuck with me and i've always just had a tremendous amount of respect for but it's not like he was born that way right like yeah. you know odds are that this was something that was cultivated you know weekend after weekend of like doing the thing that he loved and then slowly he developed these personality traits that allowed him to you know continue to not only do that thing but also you know allow other people um to have access to that thing that he loved yeah no, i love i love that idea because that i the, the i find it so revolutionary just that simple concept that like we, not only can you change the, that we've proven now through, through various domains in neuroscience that you can change your most fun, some of your most fundamental aspects, like your, your intelligence, right? Which mm-hmm. seems for a lot of people like a really fixed thing. It's like, no, you can, you can actually, uh, mm-hmm. you can actually change that. Um, but then even relating to that is this idea of what you just described, which is that I think one of the big misconceptions, I think Rian, we were talking about this, I don't know, a week ago or something, but the idea, this misconception in our culture that passion mm-hmm. is this thing you just like uncover. You know, mm-hmm. like you're just going to open the closet one day. Oh, holy shit. There's my, there, I miss, I misplaced it. It was mm-hmm. just in the whole time. But like what you just described was it was built, right. right? Like you, you started with this spark and you, you, you fanned those flames and you engaged with this topic. Mm-hmm. And over time it became like, you love this thing. Exactly. Exactly. And it's amazing. Like, I don't know if, if I look at like where I was, like take skydiving, right? Like, like my first year of skydiving, I mean, it was, um, incredible and I absolutely loved like all different dimensions of this. Um, but it only scratched the surface of what I did the season after that, which only scratched the surface of what I did the season after that. And then I got into base jumping and then I got into like all these other domains that like were incredibly exciting. And I was, you know, skydiving at places that I just felt were like the coolest places to skydive on earth. And like, and so like you continue to scale those things like time after time, but like that long-term thinking is absolutely key. And so, and this is one of like the main uh, things that I oftentimes talk to people about when they're first getting involved in flow is like sometimes they'll be like, oh, I, I had kind of a flow experience where like, you know, I had this interesting conversation with a colleague um 
the other week. And, you know, my recommendation is always like set your sights insanely high, right? So like take a huge step back and be like, okay, over the course of my entire life, you know, what were some of the deepest flow experiences? What were some of those most powerful experiences? Like what were the main contributing factors to it? Because oftentimes when people think about flow, they're thinking, they're really thinking about micro flow. Um, and so I think one common misconception is that, oh, micro flow is flow, right? And micro flow is one part of flow, right? So what's the difference? So I, so think of flow as a spectrum, right? And so if, um, like one common microflow experience is uh, endurance running. So say you've been jogging for 20 to 30 minutes. That's normally when you start to feel some sense of flow, right? So you, you start to feel uh, much more in tune with your body and your surroundings. Your mind is wandering less. Um, that's a state called exercise induced transient hypofrontality. And so your prefrontal cortex, right? Like the front new part of your brain is becoming uh, less active, um, uh, caused in large part by that exercise. Um, and so like you can like think of that as just like w- scratching the surface of this much larger domain. And it's really helpful to get a sense of like what are especially like the action sport athletes doing or like the surgeons doing or these people who are just performing these incredible feats. Because if you look at what some of the things the action sport athletes are doing, right, they're not flukes, right? Like they're able to reproduce these incredible, incredible results that take so much attention to detail. I mean, think about wingsuit base jumping right with these guys with squirrel squirrel suits who are jumping off like the alps in uh switzerland right um so when like they're actually doing that they're moving their ground speed is you know can be 100 to 200 miles per hour and their feet off the ground right and so like the level of like the the depth of flow that they need in order to be able to accomplish that is huge um and so like when you're initially getting involved in this field and you're initially saying like oh i want more flow in your life like take a huge step back maybe not set your sights that high like maybe wingsuit base <laughs> jumping shouldn't be what you uh what you set your sights for but the point is that this is a very very large spectrum and odds are if you're less familiar with this space you're going to set your sights really really low on this and so um try and set your sights as high as possible and then work incrementally through fundamental habit shifts um so that you can get there yeah, I think just generally people underestimate the degree to which they can shift or manipulate their state of consciousness without ingesting anything. Mm. And that's kind of what Connor's talking about as well, is that you can have radically different experiences to what your everyday default experience is through activities and through doing certain things that drive you into these states versus having to, you know, exogenously consume some substances or whatever it is. Um so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, so, so I, I was just going to add to that and say, like, you know, one thing that's really interesting from, you know, what I've seen in this space, right, which is, uh, you know, I've been involved in um, action sports for a number of years at this point, um, is people get so uh, fixated on their individual activity as the way that they get into flow. And then if their individual activity is dangerous and they continue to do that, mm-hmm. it's it's going to be problematic to say the least, yeah. right? Um, and so like having the self-awareness to divorce what your specific activity is from what the underlying psychological state is allows you to find flow in in new places and so for instance you know we had somebody at uh we we were just in seattle for a a training event there um and we had uh, somebody who was a skydiver himself um and was having a lot of difficulties finding flow in his life because he quit skydiving because he had a pretty major accident yeah um 
And so he was having a lot of trouble being like, okay, I'm locked out of flow because I no longer have this thing. And, you know, I was trying to make this point of, you know, this is just a state of consciousness, right? Like, you know, you, you can flip that switch doing skydiving, but you could flip that switch in any number of different um, domains as well. And like, if like risk is a potent flow trigger, but it's obviously a risky one, right? Um, but like one way that you can trigger risk really, really easily is through any sort of social risk. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, people systematically rate public speaking as the most like scary thing that they can do. And so like fucking use it, right? Like, 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 like that, that is a risk you can use in order to get yourself into flow. And like early on, like that's what I was doing. Um, is like, I, like, like I mentioned this quantified self project that I did before where I was tracking all this behavior. Like one thing that I learned from that, that I didn't know before is that I really liked public speaking. I thought I didn't like public speaking because I would get stressed as hell before I would actually have to speak in public. But then I would look back on my mood over time and be like, actually, I would have an elevated mood for, you know, a day and a half afterwards. Mm. Um, and I actually really liked it before I like looked at the data. I was overemphasizing like the stress associated with it. And so I started like seeking out more and more public speaking engagements um, because I just really, really like, you know, like enjoyed like that level of pressure. And like, I don't know when you like make a joke in front of an audience and it hits really well and like, like, like all, like all of those things are just, you know, immensely like, um, I don't know, powerful for me. And so like understanding that like flow is a state of consciousness that, you know, you can change based upon environmental conditions, based, based upon your outlook, based upon like your habits, based upon all these other things, you can manipulate these things in order to tap into more flow. You're not married to doing the thrill seeking dangerous thing that yeah. eventually is going <clears> to <throat> get you killed if you keep on doing it. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of learning what the knobs and levers are and then learning how to play with them and again yeah it's not inherent or embedded into any activity although certain activities like public speaking like skydiving like surfing are inherently more rich in flow triggers so they have maybe knobs and levers that are kind of easier to play with but ultimately is it is just a matter of getting a set of variables in place and shuffling them so that you know you can drive yourself into that state yeah, right. I think I love that idea because I think it's actually a super empowering idea. Like thinking about that guy you're talking about, the skydiver mm-hmm. who he he doesn't he's not going to do that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. That's on some level that's crushing, right? It's like yeah. when you know you meet um, like a surfer who loves surfing so much and they got injured and they can't surf for six months and mm-hmm. they're like depressed, right? And you're like, that sucks. I don't want to see a human being depressed. And so I think this is super empowering for people if they can start to understand, as you just said, Rian, like the knobs and the levers. What can I, you know, how do I get my hands on this thing? So I can make my whole life better, right? Because if, if flow from what the, what you are, you all are telling me and what the research shows is not only an optimal state of consciousness, it's like somebody asked me the day, they're like, cool flow. Yeah. I know the name, but like, why do I care? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, you, you, you can care. I can think of at least a couple of reasons. Like reason one, you're going to feel the best you feel. Yeah. Reason two, you're going to perform at, you know, take any performance metric or measure you want. It's going to go through the roof. Mm-hmm. And uh, number three is it's, you know, it seems like these are pretty reliably the most meaningful, rewarding, inherently rewarding mm-hmm. experiences of your life. It's like, you fill your life up with that, you're going to have a pretty good life. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Period. Your life's going to just get better. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. And so it's like, all right, I think it's really exciting for people to start to, that's what I hope we can get in this conversation is to, to hand people some of these, 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 this understanding and the, the things they can do in their lives to have more of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it was funny. Like, um, Stephen called me a number of months ago and it was like the most interesting conversation because we were talking about our, our newest training program and, 
um, like Stephen's question was, um, what is it that you know now that you wish you had known, you know, years ago when you kind of started, you know, incorporating more flow in your life? Um, and so like, pardon me for being totally esoteric, but like the, the, like the response I like I gave was, you know, like what I wish I had known at a much earlier age was that a, you're a programmable person and B, mm. you're the person who gets to do the programming, right? Like that's, <laughs> that, that's the weirdest fucking thing about being human, right? Yeah. Is like you're, you're programmable, right? Like you can change over time. And re- programmable um, in reprogrammable exactly um and you're the person who gets to like decide the fate of that um and so if if you like like that's uh, kind of like a really esoteric way of like saying it but like if you kind of keep that back in mind then you know it doesn't matter whether you're doing skydiving or anything else you know you can find your way back into that state and like like the, the conversation back in seattle with that guy was really interesting because like there was a palpable sense of anxiety from like what the fuck do i do right mm. um and it's like well you divorce your psychology from like that particular activity and that's not easy to do especially like you know if you're doing skydiving right like you're just getting this fucking blast of like neurochemistry right and it's it's a highly highly addictive neurochemistry um but you can duplicate this in any other different domains and so there have been times that like, you know, I like, um, you know, I, my focus is on, uh, data, right? Um, and so I do a lot of coding and statistics. And like, there are times in those projects that I get into deeper flow states than I get with skydiving. Um, and so like, I'm sitting behind a computer, right? But, right. but, like, but like, that's uh, like, I'm still able to access that same state. And so like, divorce your psychology from your activity. Yeah. I have a friend, just as an example of that, who used to be a college level football player and obviously was able to get in flow, you know, massively while playing football. It was his primary source of it. And then for about five or six years after that, he got an injury, couldn't play anymore and felt, you know, quote unquote, locked out of flow and had this gaping void in his life. Then went to a breathwork class, dropped into that same state. It was like, oh my God, I remember this feels like (laughs) Um, doing breathwork and then became a breathwork teacher. And that's his whole main thing now, because simply he's able to recreate the same state, you know, through a totally different means. You know, one is like an active form of meditation, which is breathwork. One is playing college football, but the, you know, the end result is all these doorways into the same, we're always looking for that same place. We're always trying to get to that same inner, inner space, that inner experience. So, I mean, to what you were just saying, Connor, about like, it's, it's, probably the most addictive thing ever. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. listening to, I was doing some research and I listened to a talk Steve, Stephen gave it at, at Google, I think. And he was talking <laughs> about like the, it's this crazy chemical cocktail in the brain that like, if you tried to make a street drug to replicate <laughs> this cocktail, it would you just like, do it. instantly kill you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was like the big five were like dopamine, which is basically yeah. what cocaine does. Right. Uh, serotonin, which is MDMA or LSD mm-hmm. and nandamide, which is from THC, mm-hmm. aka weed, mm-hmm. uh, norepinephrine, which is speed. Yeah. And then, um, endorphins, which is like hardcore exercise. Oh, if someone tried to synthesize that it'd fucking kill you yeah. right exactly exactly <laughs> but we have the, we get it like automatically yeah and, right and so it's like wow that's amazing i think <laughs> a, a way that i found at least extremely helpful for thinking about this that Stephen and jamie talk about in stealing fire they call it the skin bag bias hmm. What's so that? so most people assume that you can only manipulate your neurochemistry through absorbing something exogenously and don't realize that you know endogenously through deploying flow triggers or getting into these activities or whatever it is that you can drive yourself into a state that neurophysiologically is very similar to the state you would be in if you had you know ingested something 
Right. And so the skin bag bias is assuming that, you know, there's a like a distinct inherent difference between consuming a substance that tweaks your neurochemistry versus doing a thing that tweaks your neurochemistry. But, you know, on the inside, the, the set, you know, it's all the same, essentially. And the experience can often be very similar as well. For sure. For sure. I think that's I mean, fascinating because I mean, it's like when you, when you think about, I, I mean, I haven't, I'm not an expert in like addiction or any of the, the science around that, but I've anecdotally heard from a lot of different people. Like if you look at it, a lot of times it's, it's people are, um, feeling disconnection and seeking certain states because it's, it, they feel alive. Right. And it's like, wow, if you, if you didn't have to go to a, a substance to feel that, like, that'd be good. Right? Yeah. That, that would be a really good thing. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I mean, it, the one thing I think a lot about is astronaut syndrome. Um, what's that? And so, so astronaut syndrome is, um, something that's happened, uh, something that happens with astronauts who go and, you know, effectively they're, they're building their entire careers, then go to space. Right. And so they like work on that the entirety of their career. Their entire being is focused on that. And then, you know, they get to space, they come down, they shake hands with the president and then like they go back home and they're like, now what the fuck do I do? (laughs) And so like, like, like the rate of opiate addiction amongst uh, astronauts who have returned from space is just off the charts. Wow. And you you see this with like, especially impact sport athletes, like, right. Like if you see this with NFL players as well, where it's like, oh, I did the sport. Now I'm no longer doing the sport. What do I do? Um, and so it, it's such like an important thing to be able to like, uh, first, like recognize that that's a thing, right? Anytime you get involved in these sort of peak states, you're like, okay, great. I found like this peak state and it's wonderful. I got this through skydiving. I got this through whatever. Um, and then now that I have to deal with my, like, you know, default, okay life, like I'm bored, I feel locked out of something. Um, and then like people get into trouble, right? People get into substance abuse. People get yeah. into uh cults because of this, because maybe a cult is the only way that they can get back into that state mm-hmm. because effectively what, state. Mm-hmm. exactly because effectively what cults are doing are they're manipulating a lot of this chemistry in order to give you a sense of, you know, um, uh, peak states or flow or community or whatever it might be. Um, and so they get into all sorts of problems. And so part of it is just like a self-awareness, like you need to know that, you know, your psychology is independent from these different things. And then not only will you be happier long-term, but you can avoid some of these pitfalls, which, you know, includes substance abuse and cults and whatever else. Yeah. Sebastian Younger in his book, Tribes, talks about the same thing happening to a very, very severe degree with soldiers. Mm-hmm. where they come back from war and they're just again have this gaping gaping void in their lives because they were in such a deep immense state of flow that also had belonging and things like that all intermingled in it while at war and they literally would rather be you know you know horrific war zone with the risk of death because they're able to be in that experience then be at home and kind of locked out of that experience so again related to what you're saying it's extremely important i think for people to have multiple access points in their life that are risk-free so for example you know you need it you need a cognitive root into flow oftentimes it's good to also have a creative root into flow you want an embodied root into flow like skydiving but you know steven even was talking about the fact that he was on the phone with mihai chiksamihai who's the godfather of flow and kind of coined the term and did the original psychological research who and he recommended to Stephen that he take up piano because in his older years you know when Stephen's in his late 70s early 80s and maybe he will be skiing but i don't know it's not definite so he needs another gateway mm. into that same state so he's Stephen's taking up the piano just ah. <laughs> so that he oh, can drive, he really? yeah, oh, so he can drive himself him. into that state 
up to you know his very very late much much later years good for him so oh, it's he, important to have exactly yeah. and just to add to what you said a social way of getting into flow yeah like right. it, and so uh, I, I think that's something we normally like discount is oftentimes our like model for somebody in flow is you know an individual who's hucking it in some capacity um and that's not necessarily the case uh so a lot of people that we find within the people who you know are, are within our larger uh group um are very um attuned to social flow yeah um whether that's you know like managers who are in meetings or whether that's just individuals who are you know a little bit more on the social butterfly side of yeah. things yeah, yeah so let's let's we've used this word a lot flow trigger and i want to actually take a second and and talk about those mm-hmm. uh, what is so so for the listener what is a flow trigger and let's talk about some of the some of the common ones so they can start to understand kind of what's on the menu Yes. Yeah, so, so maybe I'll start with like the 80, 20 rule. Um, and so like what gives you the biggest bang for your buck? This is a concept that like people normally get right as w- away as soon as like you, you talk about it. Um, but they don't necessarily associate it back with flow, uh, which is the challenge skill balance. Right. And so that's like the so-called golden rule of flow. And so if you imagine, um, uh, your level of challenge that you have at any given time and the level of skill you have at any given time. If you have too much challenge and not enough skill, you're going to be overwhelmed, right? You're going to be in this anxious state. If you have not enough challenge and too much skill, you're going to be bored, right? Because you're better than that. Um, and so flow happens at the midpoint between those two things. And so there's the so-called 4% rule. Um, the 4% rule is kind of hand wavy. Um, but think about it like the uh, amount of challenge that you have should be just above your current skill level. So some people put this at about 4%. How do you really quantify it? That's a nebulous, nebulous thing, but it's directionally accurate. And so generally you want a little bit more challenge than the amount of skill that you have at any given time and not only that but as you get more and more skilled over time the amount of challenge and the amount of flow that you need or the amount of challenge that you have goes up obviously Mm -hmm. but the amount of flow that you give goes up goes up as well and so you can imagine if you have the perfect challenge skill balance and you're playing tetris and you don't give a fuck about tetris right (laughs) like you're you're gonna like you're not necessarily going to be able to find flow with that but as you um are in a um a domain that you're much more proficient at you're going to continue to find more and more flow as your skill level improves over time. Right. Yeah. And just to kind of paint a broader picture as well. So flow triggers are preconditions basically for people who are listening that drive you into a flow state. And there's different categories of flow triggers. There's what, 21 identified in the literature at the moment, is it? It, it, it depends on how you want to quantify yeah, right. it, right? Yeah. So the, the original overlap research, between them and yeah, stuff. Yeah, the, the original research is there's nine main characteristics of flow. Three yeah. of those are considered preconditions. Um, and then there are a number of other things that you can... Uh, uh, right. Uh, it's uh, a really good, just to clarify something, when you say a precondition, is that like it is mechanistic? Like if this occurs, flow will happen? Or is this more like I'm setting the stage and I, I'm increasing the odds of getting into flow, but it's not guaranteed? So Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. I think some of them are cyclical and then some of them are preconditions. So in other words, something like passion, like passion can be a trigger for flow, but then flow also enhances and drives passion, you know, so it like feeds itself. But there are different categories of triggers. So there's psychological triggers, there's environmental triggers, there's social triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, let's just make it insanely concrete. So like first to respond to your question uh, directly, um, like none of this is mechanistic, right? And so all of this is probabilistic. Okay. And so like I can't like necessarily drive you into flow by doing this, this, and this. So there's no button for flow. There's no like formula that you do this guaranteed you'll be in flow. It's just increasing the odds. Exactly. Exactly. Like this is always a probability game. Um, And so like what you're doing is you're manipulating these different dimensions to increase the probability that you're going to get into flow. Uh, But we can't determine that you're into flow. Um, You're going to get into flow and so just to be really like you know insanely practical with some of the uh, triggers so challenge skill balance is one of them that i mentioned immediate feedback is a big one as well um and so with immediate feedback we talked a little bit about uh, my background in nonprofits before one of the reasons why that was so challenging for me is uh because i had a one year uh clip on my feedback mechanism so i would basically make a decision about a grant that was taking place in some country in sub-saharan africa And then one year later, I'd get a report back. And when I got that report back, maybe I would remember that grant possibly, but I would never remember my decision-making process. Maybe I'd go back and take a look at it. But that feedback loop was so long that it was not a very flow-prone job at all. Whereas like I got you know, big into technology and, you know, a big part of working with data is, you know, actually coding. Um, and coding is, you know, one of the best forms of immediate feedback, yeah. right? Like video games is great for it. Yeah, right, um, it like, uh, but coding is excellent, excellent for it because I can write a lot of code. I can run it. I can see the output. I can see like how I did. Um, and so like, uh, having like building in those immediate feedback mechanisms are huge. Mm. Um, and so anything that you can do in order to have a faster way of getting feedback on what you're doing, um, is huge. Right. And that's, you know, for me at the time, it was, uh, like email communication was the main way that I was communicating with people. I had to just drop that off and call people. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, it was like switching to like phone calls rather than email was one way that I could just speed up the feedback loop so much so that it increased that probability of me dropping into flow. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.